0: Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia by M.I.M. More than a podcast. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home.
1: As Birds of a Feather returns to ITV for a Christmas lockdown special, we're talking exclusively to the show's creators as we kick off a new series about comedy writing legends. From Birds to Goodnight Sweetheart via Rick Mail and The New Statesman, Lawrence Marks and Maurice Gran are among the masters of British comedy. They've been giving a comprehensive interview about their careers to Ashley from their base in the Cotswolds.
2: Well, guys, it's an absolute honour to speak to you both. You both go back a long way. And when I look through your histories, as it were, it always seems as though you've been together writing for a long time. There doesn't seem to be anything separate. It seems to be the two of you have been there together for a long, long time. So why don't you start off taking us back to the beginning. Morris? why don't you kick us off? How did it all begin?
3: We've known each other since we were about 10 or 11, quite a long time. And we started writing together, sort of semi by chance, when we, first, we both went to a writer's group in our mid-20s. So maybe before then, early 20s, 73, 74, Lawrence stumbled on a writer's group where you could have your scripts read, discussed, analysed, judged. And we really liked that. We were both wanted to write, although I don't think either of us necessarily wanted to write drama. We wanted to write something individually, separately. And through going there, we got the chance to try things out, write sketches, short bits and pieces, again separately they made people laugh even the serious ones made people laugh and so um that was our start and then i let lawrence go on now
4: well we carried on at the drama workshop we kept winning all the competitions separately we still weren't writing together and then the secretary of the club an old stage right i mean he was not older man than us we were in our 20s and he said, why don't you two try writing together? You've kept winning all these competitions over a period of 18 months or something like that. And so we took the day off work and wrote our first half-hour sitcom. That would have been in 1974.
3: Yes, and that won the Golden Rose of Finsbury Park. <laughs> and so um, that went, eventually went to the BBC, who of course didn't buy it but they were quite encouraging, and so the next few years we were um, impelled by a series of encouraging rejections um, until we find that he had an acceptance and became overnight successes five years later.
2: So what was your first success then?
4: Well, it has to be the Frankie Howard show, but that was for radio. We were working with the comedy legend... He taught us a great deal. He was an interesting man. I won't say he was a lovely man, but he was an interesting man. He was a fine performer and a, and, a, and a flawed human being, but then so many are. And that was on radio. And then we wrote for him the his Royal Command performance of about, I think it was 78. Um, and he kind of stole the show. He was an unannounced special guest for The Queen Mother. And he just came on unannounced, and he did about six, seven minutes that we had written and Then, as we have since learned that the next day the next day people were saying, "Did you see last night's variety performance Frankie Howard stole the show his material is back to its best. I wonder who's writing it?" and I think it was eventually discovered that there was these two kids, one who was a civil servant and the other one was a journalist. And um, through that, we got onto television. We didn't want to write a uh, radio stand-up because we're not stand-up writers, although we did learn from Frankie the, the importance of comedy in comedy.
3: I should also add that our guiding spirit during this time was Barry Took, who Lawrence had met on a train and had finally, after 150 miles, got the courage to say well, hundreds of miles and 36 hours, that um, he was part of a would-be comedy writing duo because it was Barry who introduced us to Frankie Howard. And then from there we got to London Weekend Television with an idea called Holding the Fort about a stay-at-home husband and a go-to-work wife, which in 1978 or 79, when we pitched it, was relatively novel and... We sold it to London Weekend. They commissioned a pilot as part of a sort of comedy playhouse they were doing, and that was cast brilliantly by them with Patricia Hodge, Peter Davison, Matthew Kelly. And then the day that our show was meant to be recorded, the ITV strike broke out. Um, There were
4: six whole shows and half a dress rehearsal.
3: They recorded our dress rehearsal, which they weren't supposed to do. That was against the unions. And then three months later, when the strike finally ended, the head of, uh, of RWT, Michael Grade, um, called for all the tapes. And of the six and a half shows, he put our half a show into, um, into, into series. And I've been sending him £100 a week in a brown envelope ever since.
4: <laughs> he rang us up and said, I'd like you to do a series. Well, of course, we were still at work. We still had jobs. So we had to make that decision in 1979-80. Do we leave our jobs? Because we clearly can't do this after work. Particularly, I I couldn't, because I was a journalist on call. So we couldn't say, we'll do it on Thursday. And it was a full-time job. So we had to make the decision to leave our day jobs. And on the 10th of March 1980, 40 years ago, we were going to celebrate some kind of anniversary, except for Covid got in first. We had uh, started out this job we're doing. That was our first day, the tenth of March, nineteen eighty.
2: <laughs> well, you'll have to make sure that you have a celebration at some time. And congratulations on uh, on on forty years. And <laughs> um, talking about holding the fort, it's interesting you mentioned the ITV strike because I was looking up holding the fort, and I thought to myself, um, I know things take you know can take a long time, but obviously the strike itself would have had. Uh, quite an effect wouldn't it
4: yeah we made it we made it in august of 79 the half address run that was committed to tape and it shouldn't have been and uh, this, this i happen to know these dates because morris and i've been writing a book about this toward the end of december of that year the strike finished and it was uh, in January that Michael Grade yes. viewed all yep. the tapes and, and commissioned them.
3: So if you think about it, we were asked in January if we wanted to do a series. and um, We left our jobs sort of the beginning of March. That series was on the air so, at that, the, um, in six months later. So we were writing those shows and we were in the studio. We were on location by June. I don't think we... We probably were still writing episode five when episode two was in the studio. They were mad, those people at London Weekend, letting us do that.
4: But I will tell you an interesting story, because it's not a question you'll ask us. At around that time...
3: But was it that time?
4: Well, it was just in the middle of that (laughs) time. Morris and I were working, as everyone was, on on a typewriter. And you went from a manual typewriter, if you made a bit of money, to an electric one. But essentially it was still the same. You thread a piece of paper into the machine and you pound it out on the keys and then you finished up with a script. We broke our electric typewriter so much that we were introduced by the man from the typewriter shop to a company in South London that had this device. As he described it to us was, I don't know what it is, he said, but it's, it's a typewriter keyboard and a television set and and a cassette recorder. And I said, well, what do you do? He said, I've got no idea. You better and, go and, down.
3: And, and, and some sort of print. Yeah.
4: yeah. So, so I said, well, how do you get what's on the screen onto paper? He said, oh, don't ask me that. You'll have to meet the salesman. Anyway, cut a long story short, we bought a prototype computer to write our scripts on. Nobody at any of the television companies knew what they were. The only other person we knew that that had one was Douglas Adams, who was writing Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We didn't know Stephen Fry, but he had bought one too. And John Cleese. They were the only people we knew with a computer, or we knew had a computer. Anyway, what was happening was, we were writing these scripts, but of course, instead of delivering the first typed copy to London Weekend Television as you know, or everyone knows now, With a, you rewrite, 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 and when you're ready, you print it out. And then you, and that's what we were doing. And of course, Humphrey Barclay, who was the head of comedy at London Weekend Television, said, these are amazing. Their first drafts are like other people's tenth drafts. I don't know how they do it. Well, we weren't going to tell him. And anyway, so then he said, well, I've got some notes for this episode. and he'd Give us these page of notes. He said, can I have it in a fortnight? And Morris or I said to him, you can have it in the morning. By which time he had told Michael Grade, and we know this now from Michael Grade, he said, I've met a pair of geniuses. I've never known anyone to write so quickly. They do their rewrites overnight. He said, I think we ought to put them under contract. And consequently, Morris and I would give... I can't remember what the deal was, but it well, was... Well,
3: were, we were... I think around the time the first series was going out, or maybe it was even before it went out, they said, would you they commissioned us to do three more series of anything we wanted to <laughs> non-exclusive which was extraordinary so my, I,
4: michael grade said that humphrey barclay said i've got two mozarts sitting in my well,
3: office so i i celebrated by rushing out and buying a brand new fiat strada because i had Whoa, real well, that was ambitious. i had real class then <laughs> You know, it was made by robots. I knew what I wanted. And and
4: let me tell you, that was in 1980, 81. And in 1984, there still wasn't a computer to be seen in London Weekend Television. And when we went to work in Hollywood, I had to ask before we got to the Paramount Studios if they'd install a word processor, because they didn't have one either. So you were real pioneers.
2: We
3: were pioneers. We were pioneers. And luckily, no one ever figured out why all our scripts had perforations. (laughs)
4: <laughs> they did, that's right. That yeah. It was really ancient that's because in order to, whereas now you press save, then you, it was all going to a cassette tape. So you pressed record and play and waited for 45 minutes whilst that morning's work was put onto the tape. Uh, it was really antiquated, but I'm absolutely convinced that it forwarded our career by five years.
2: We'll be back after a quick break.
5: But you still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You yeah. feel me? Loading them up on it,
3: it only takes structure,
5: and, and you know just paying attention to the climate of the game.
3: Yeah, know what I mean. So do do your homies uh got a role
1: in your in your little? You mean yeah yeah we all we all artists over here man. I'm y'all trying, all right? yeah, oh, yeah, I'm yeah. trying. Oh I'm, yeah. Trying, yeah. I'm trying. to get them on there. Yeah, look
4: look look We
2: all
1: artists, man. We go. You feel me? We gonna have this
3: like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man, Kyle, <laughs> we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this, <laughs> don't play shit, with this shit. I got to lie,
5: We play with this shit right now for
3: a oh, lie. Play don't, it, don't play with it. Take nah. that
1: shit. Soon.
5: Christmas on distinct nostalgia. When I ran out of children's books, I used to read from woman's own. Who knew a four-year-old would be gripped by an article on cross-stitch? We're uniting the ages with Generation Games, a series of comedy and drama monologues and duologues coming exclusively to distinct nostalgia. Stories exploring connections, friendships and relationships between people across different age groups, beginning with Missing You, starring June Brown and Sam Barnard. I like her, I said. And then, silence... Pity that social worker of his can't do something useful for a change. Contact the noise abatement lot. Put in a complaint. I didn't want to be a lawyer, but what can you do? Missing You by Richard Vergette with the legendary June Brown this Christmas only on Distinct Nostalgia. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast.
2: You, you were saying there about the uh, the ITV strike in 1979, and I was a little boy. I remember it quite well. Actually, I remember this awful uh, jingle that they used when they brought back ITV. It was like "Welcome back to ITV" or something, something strange. But uh, because things were off for quite a long time, and and uh, I read somewhere that there was um, the, the, the test card on ITV at one point was getting more viewers than anything else that be, was being put out on the BBC or something.
3: Yes, that's right. Well, no, no that's a bit of exaggeration. People but but, but there, was, there was... In those days, there were... It was almost like you voted Labour and you watched ITV, or you voted Conservative and you watched BBC. And the ITV test card, there were lots of houses who, whose BBC button had rusted over. And so they just had on in the background on ITV just in case and there were certainly at some times over a million people looking at ITV but at the time the BBC had a field day to the manor of Born launch during the strike and they were getting 15, 16, 17 million viewers. You know the, the BBC one, BBC two I mean I think BBC had sort of clawed itself back during the 70s from a very poor position in the 60s and ITV you know Obviously, obviously, did suffer, but surprisingly, there was so much advertising money sloshing around, and and, and, and you know, Channel Four didn't exist, obviously. So ITV probably just—I think they probably got the government to let them have a couple more minutes advertising per hour for the following six months. Mm. I guess they made their money back.
2: But you're absolutely right. People were either BBC people or ITV people, weren't they? And some people would only watch the news on BBC or on ITV. They would never cross over. Yes,
3: yes, yes.
2: So your first big break then was at London Weekend. And was, and was that rewarded then? Did they keep you in work after that?
3: Well, what happened, as we said, was they offered us this fantastic deal. So off the back of that deal, we did two more series of, of holding the fort. And we probably, I mean, we had one or two other ideas that we discussed with Humphrey Barkley, uh, who was head of comedy. And then we felt we'd done all we could with Holding the Fort. The days where you kept a show going for 20 years because it was an earner hadn't, hadn't, hadn't dawned. And we wanted, so we had an idea to do a spin off of Holding the Fort, uh, starring Matthew Kelly. And as a result of Michael Grade going off to America and John Burt becoming controller of London Weekend. The atmosphere at London Weekend changed, and Michael Gray's open door policy turned into John Burt's trapdoor policy. If you went into his office without knocking, and um, Humphrey Barclay couldn't even get a meeting to discuss our new show, and as as um, this coincided with the birth of Channel Four, he decided to start his own production company and he pitched our show which eventually was called relative strangers with matthew kelly to channel four and they commissioned 12 episodes straight off Um, it did
4: remarkable
3: business
4: in fact it did such good business they cancelled it and they cancelled it on the ground it was getting too many viewers
3: yeah it was they were a bit embarrassed because there was supposed to be a niche channel and we were getting eight million viewers (laughs) I mean, partly because we were going out opposite Panorama, but nonetheless, we are getting 8 million viewers. In fact, now that London Weekend no longer exists as a separate corporate entity, I'm prepared to admit we still owe them a series.
2: (laughs) And, of course, around that time, there was all the different changes in the ITV um, companies, wasn't there? They were being advertised and things. And, uh, and, and of course... um, ATV lost its franchise and Central took over. And um, I presume that's, at that point, that's what opened the door for um, Shine on Harvey Moon, was it?
4: Yeah, kind of. We... Well, Shine were... on Harvey Moon's a long story because Shine on Harvey Moon came as a consequence of independent television production.
3: But it preceded it. Preceded Central succeeding ATV. Dick Clement and Lafrené had started a production company with a man called Alan McEwen, who was a brilliant producer, and had a deal with, with, with ATV. which They'd done a deal with, um, with Lou Gray, that they could virtually, you know, to make shows, ATV would pay for the shows, but had no right uh, to say who should be in them or what they should be like. It was an extraordinary deal.
4: Anyway, they were our heroes, Dick and Ian, and they were the reason we started writing comedy, because of porridge, largely. So our agent said, well, they're in England they, and they're starting this company called End. I think you should go along and see them. And we went along uh, to talk to the man who ran the company called Tony Charles and put to him an idea which he rather liked and commissioned a treatment. He said, I'll give you 500 quid, do us the treatment. We did the treatment, gave it back to him. He must have shown it to Dick and Ian and they really liked it. And they were coming over to England at that time and said would you like to go and meet them well of course we as far as we were concerned we could have just had the meeting and given up after that because we were sitting there with the the two heroes in fact anyway what came from that was shine on harvey moon we wrote the pilot because that's all there was and that went out on atv and um what was interesting about that was that having made the pilot before it was transmitted i don't even know if it was transmitted as a pilot but before that episode went out one day at home i got a phone call you know we were working at home and it was michael grade well you know when someone of that power rings you at home you're absolutely taken aback and he said look guys i've just rang to tell you that i've just seen your first episode of shine on harvey moon and let me tell you you've got a mega hit on your hands he said, I just thought I'd tell you that, because he was running the
3: weekend... But Michael, who we still love and still see, there's nothing he likes more than giving good news, you know. So we're thinking, this is very decent of him, of course, but it's a lovely phone call to make, isn't it?
4: And so it was, so
3: it was. He was
4: right what as what he happened, usually was. Yes,
3: but again, we were very lucky, and we can put some of it down to the fact that we had this magical computer. We'd now upgraded to a proper pc made by a company called Compaq, um which we bought on the brilliant basis that john cleese was advertising them on the telly so (laughs) we thought we'll have one of those i think it cost three thousand pounds in 1982 which you could have bought a house you you could have bought a house in manchester for that and so we wrote the pilot of harvey moon i don't know whether ATV commissioned the series on the strength of the pilot.
4: They did, they
3: did, they did. So, so on the strength of the... Before the pilot was shot, ATV said, we're not going to put the pilot out, we just want to go straight to series, write the remaining scripts, which we wrote the remaining scripts. We must have shot the remaining scripts in the summer of 81, the autumn of 81. Things seemed to happen much more quickly then, you know, between writing and, and shooting. It was and, transmitted and, and to and, and then the most extraordinary thing happened. And, and because, as Lawrence said, we'd been starting to p- write a memoir, and you look back at those times, that around the autumn of 81, the head of drama at... ATV, who was a woman called Margaret Matheson, who was... Abigail's partner, And who was married to David Hare. She saw these six half-hours and said, this isn't comedy, it's drama. I want it for the drama department. Would you now write six hours f- for series two? Bearing in mind series one hasn't gone out yet. So we said, well, we don't know how to write hours we said to dick and ian do you know how to write hours and they said not really presumably you write two half hours and stick them together that's what dick said and Mm. and i and we and i remember saying to lawrence or he said to me it's got to be more complicated than that dick and ian were living a lot of most of the time in the us partly because they were working there and partly because they liked the tax rate there so they said or someone said, or oh. Alan McEwen, the, the, who ran the business, said, why don't you go out to Hollywood for a few weeks in January and work with Dick and Ian on the show? So we said, no. oh, all right, if you insist. <laughs> so off we went, leaving England in a blit, no, terrible. in terrible, terrible weather, in the January 1982, uh, and found ourselves in Hollywood, staying in an apartment and driving to, you know, up and down the boulevards, in 80 degrees of Fahrenheit. Harvey Moon hasn't even gone out yet. Uh, Two weeks into our stay in L.A., to middle of January, second half of January, Harvey uh, Harvey went out and... uh, Well, maybe it's only a few days in, because uh, maybe it's only a few days into our stay. Harvey went out and there was... Um, a blizzard in the UK most of the UK was under snow we so Harvey went out on Friday night half past eight it got somewhere above 17 million viewers it got the most incredible press the sun called it almost perfect but only gave it nine out of ten because they couldn't see anyone's tits mm. and and I remember saying then and I've said it countless times since we've peaked you know the the next 38 years we're going to have to spend trying to maintain this this. and you know it was like this was our great second album Um, and I don't know why we hit our pace so quickly because that changed the way we were perceived in the business because suddenly we were writing hours as well as writing half hours and so on and so forth.
2: Well, I remember Shine and Harvey Moon really well and really really enjoyed it, and of course, there are things that of course came out of Shine and Harvey Moon, and we'll get to those in a moment, but let's just talk a little bit about the fact that you were supposedly writing a comedy, and then it, it turned into, into a drama.
4: Yeah, in fact, Alan McEwen, who was the executive producer, saw Harvey. Saw what Michael Grade saw and said, this isn't, well, this isn't a comedy.
3: Well, when he read the script, he was worried that, you know, he had a comedy contract with ATV, and was this a comedy? Luckily, ATV didn't care.
2: But, of course, in all great drama comes comedy, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, right. you know,
4: and, and... But Margaret Matheson said, can you do the hours? We said yes. We went over to LA to work out six-hour episodes for the second series... And of course, when that went out, it always retained its audience right to the very end. When that went out, people were saying, well, these guys clearly know what they're doing. In fact, an interesting corollary of that is that having written those hours and they became hugely successful, Dick and Ian, who had been our script editors in name, they didn't contribute very much, but they were there and they were good to have there, said to each other, if these two guys... If our sort of protégés are having a big hit with an hour, we ought to create an hour, and out of that came Alveda's pair. They wrote that because of Harvey Moon.
5: This year has claimed the lives of far too many people to coronavirus. One of the many we lost was the great comedian, Eddie Large. One half of that fabulous double act, Little and Large. And he's asked, you know, when did you meet and all that? And he'd have the stock answers, you know, oh, we met by accident, you know, I ran him over on a zebra crossing, you know, things like that. In a special interview this Christmas, Sid Little remembers his long-time comedy partner and their years together making people laugh. I'd be stood there and Eddie'd go like, uh, you know, look at him. If he turned sideways and stuck his tongue out, it would look like a zip. If he had four more navels, he'd look like a flute, you know. (laughs) know, When he wears his blue suit, he looks like a refill for a viral. Because I was thin, I was really skinny, and Eddie was on the stocky side. And that's when the comedy started coming in. That's Little Remembers Large, this festive season, only on Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast.
2: So that's interesting. if Weeders Aim Pet sort of uh, was spurred on by um, Shine on Harvey Moon. Um, and of course, a Weeders Aim Pet as well was also a, um, a Central production, wasn't it?
4: Same company, Wits End, always Wits
2: You see, what happened
3: was that Wits End had this fantastic deal with ATV, which rolled on into Central. And, and as well as, you know, made other shows, we did a couple more shows for Wits End, for Central. Girls on Top was for Central. And then you know, in the mid in the mid eighties, the new regime at Central decided that they were not going to buy any shows in. Well, the whole Wits End thing, which was the pioneer of independent production, that sort of anticipated what was going to happen a little bit later.
2: Channel Four, of course. Um, yes, yes,
3: exactly. And and of course Margaret Thatcher, the day that the BBC sent eight people to do a two minute item for the news. She sort of invented independent production in this country.
4: So by this time, we we looked back and said, well, we've had a hit for London Weekend. We've had a hit for, for Channel 4. We've had a hit for Central. And people were saying, well, where do you want to go next? By this time, of course. But we wanted to stay with Alan and Dick and Ian and Tony Charles because we just loved the setup. We loved... Alan was just a great host. And you know, he said, come on guys, let's do a new series. Got another slot and we did another show that became a hit. And, and so it went on and we stayed. And then we stopped seeing Alan. I hope I'm not jumping too far in the story, but we stopped seeing Alan for about four, three, four years. When one day, pretty much out the blue, we got a phone call in our office and it was Alan. And he said, can you come to the Athenaeum Hotel in Piccadilly? for tea this afternoon, I really want to see you. And we said, sure, you know, of course. And then he told us that he'd bought, a, he'd done a reverse takeover deal for a Maxwell Moribund company, which he was going to make into a new independent. All he needed, he said, at tea, was a big, big hit show. Could you write me one, please?
3: Well, that's a, that's a beautiful praise. So yeah, Robert Maxwell company, not a, not Maxwell House. But the re you know yes, i mean we we parted company with Alan only because when they when a t v or central didn't no longer want to be in business with him, home. he went back to the states by which time he had got together with Tracy and spent the next three years turning her into the into this massive transatlantic star,
2: of course, of course, can we just go back to Shine and Harvey Moon for a moment though, before we move on and uh... Obviously Shine a Harvey Moon was a a period piece like Goodnight Sweetheart was and uh, you both seem to have a talent for writing things around historical uh periods and things. Were you um you know what was it something you always wanted to do? Was it something you always had an interest in to to write sort of uh, period pieces? And how did you set about making Shine a Harvey Moon authentic?
4: Well, no, we didn't set out to do a period Drama or comedy or whatever you want to call it Harvey Moon came from an idea um, it was a good idea and it was set in nineteen forty five We weren't born then we ought to say you know so so we were writing out of our own experience outside of our own experience. we knew people that were around my family were around and Morris's family were around so you were drawing on. Their experiences is as much, but I more, think more,
3: more than your own. I think though there were two things. I mean, as Lawrence said it was a good idea. He was Lawrence was inspired by a cover of a pic of a picture post yeah. of a man returning from the war, and and he said, you know, to a happy family, and said, suppose the wife was wishing he was dead, and that was the sort of the initial thing. But you know, we were born at the end of the forties. Uh, I remember rationing which didn't finish until sort of fifty three, fifty four. I remember blackout curtains because we used to make tents out of them in the garden. And I remember there were still pig bins in the street, you know, where Bomb they had- Bombsites. And bombsites. You know, I remember playing on bombsites, throwing knives at each other's start right sandals, <laughs> which we used to think was a good game. Um,
4: when we sat down to write Harvey, well, once we created the characters, and we, we had a good idea of the Rita, that Harvey's- yeah. Why? So we that was
3: it. But we had we had written previously a failed pilot, also set in that period. So, um, which I, I bizarrely was set in a hotel in Torquay, with a with a with a owner who hated the customers and thought she could do better. Um, so, but John Cleese was in the saloon bar whilst we were in the public <laughs> bar. So that that didn't go any further. But that was set in the in that rationing era um so that was before lawrence saw this photograph so to some degree that that period called to us but also um you know in the early 80s everyone was very very depressed um and we wanted to write about a time when people had much more reason to be depressed
4: much like now really
3: although on the other hand i always said there was more hope in the 40s than there was in the early 80s. Um, and it was one of those things. It was lovely to do the research and to consider the characters. And also Lawrence um, has had an aunt who was inspirational. Yes. Who had, you know, who had a very good war in her husband's absence. And I think, so, you know, you take your inspiration where you find it. But we certainly weren't looking to find something historical.
4: And then when we gave the script in to Alan, and he said, I'm not sure this is a comedy, but everyone loved the script, but Alan was a little bit tentative only because, his, as Morris said, his contract with ATV was to supply them with audience comedy. Now, that hadn't even been discussed yet. What, What they were talking about was a star to play Harvey Moon. And because Dick and Ian and Tony Charles moved in what I'd call the rock and roll circles. They came back and said this would be a great part for Adam, Adam Faith, who comes into our story much later. But Adam was to play Harvey Moon. Um, Dandy Nichols, who was in um, Till Death Us Do Part, was to play Nan. And beyond that, we had no idea who was going to... Mind you, we were outside the loop. This was going to be a wits End production from the inside. Anyway, we met Adam. We loved Adam. He was really good. It was he who decided that that Harvey should be the father, not the son, who we had written, because if it's going to be the title shown on Harvey Moon, then the star should be in the title. And Adam gave us lots of good ideas and and ideas and we liked him and we couldn't wait to work with him and then about a week before we were due to record, he lost his nerve and pulled out. And so Tony Charles, the producer, then went to see Ken Cranham and said, Ken, I've got a great script here, I want you to read it. This was just before Christmas. And Ken said to Tony, leave it on the table, I'll read it over Christmas. He said, no, no. I'll sit down and have a whiskey, you read it while I'm here. And he did, and he said, yes, I'd like to play Harvard But as far as, so... Um, Dandy Nichols got really ill, yeah. they cast Elizabeth Sprink. This is the luck of a hit.
3: But I don't know whether Lawrence was going to say this, but in case he wasn't, I will add that when we got this fantastic cast together, you know, with Maggie Steed and so on, um, of course, Linda Robson... And Lee Whitlock, who were cast because they looked like they could be Adam Faith's children, um, it quickly transpired that none of the cast had any intention of performing in front of anything as vulgar as a studio audience. It's true. Um, and so suddenly we found that not only were we making a comedy drama, but it would be a comedy drama without a laughter track. Um, and that gave Alan another reason to pull his hair out because. You know, he's got a sitcom deal with ATV, and now he's going to give them what then was unheard of, actually, a half-hour comedy without a studio audience.
4: So they we called it a comedy-drama and created a genre. So a kind of thing, that happened. But, but also the actors in Harvey Moon, and Morris remembers better than I, when we sat round that table with these actors from the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre... And they read it like I mean we'd yeah. never heard a script yeah. read like yeah. that before, and they were really good. And that went on for three years, four years.
2: But you had a fantastic cast in Shine and Harvey Moon, didn't you? I mean, you had uh, you know Kenneth Cranham
3: and uh, you know Leonard Fenton.
4: Yes, Suzanne. But Bert- no one who was cast in Harvey Moon was ever the wrong piece of cast. The
3: cast. We started off with about half a dozen casts, and by the end we had about a dozen, and um, they were brilliant. I mean, the devil does make, hand, does make work for idle hands, though, and if you've got a big cast, you don't really want five or six members of the Socialist Workers' Party <laughs> forming a revolutionary cell during rehearsals, which what tended to happen.
4: Just in one week, you'd write a part and you'd say, um, this is an old flame of nans. And you'd think, well, they'll get a good actor. They got more than a good actor, they got...
3: Patrick Troughton, yeah,, but the I, thing was, I, I think Tony Charles, the producer, um, had been an, an agent before, and and his casting generally speaking was was first class. We were very lucky
4: it was it was one of those shows where you know you don't get it often, but everything falls into place by a mistake or by someone pulling out or by this happening. Or that happening, and Harvey Moon was just that thing, and it came just at the right time, as Maurice said. It was our huge hit second album.
3: I always had a slight feeling on the scheduling that shows by indies sometimes lost out to shows by that the companies wasn't themselves. Case. That certainly was. But certainly case. not the first couple of series. And you know. Um, they always put it out
4: at nine till ten on a Friday night. Except for the half-hour series, which went out from up past eight till nine on a Friday night, it was a real family show because and thing, I speak to so many people of your age now and younger who said we used to watch it with my mum and dad.
3: We all watched it, it as a family. But interestingly, it played well everywhere. You know, it played well in you know Manchester. It played well in Northern Ireland, Scotland. Was a you bit, know yes, you know it was.
4: It was a real national and fact, coming and in, fa- and in fact,
3: at, at one stage. Margaret Matheson floated the balloon that she wouldn't mind two of these a week, 52 weeks a year, Um, when they were looking for a a new soap. And, of course, the cast... Aghast. The cast were aghast. That's a little poem of Lawrence's. Uh, So she she got EastEnders instead. But they were obviously thinking along those lines. The cast were not only aghast, but probably knew that they were earning for six hours what they would earn for 104 half hours. Because, as we all know, soap actors aren't particularly well paid per minute of work.
4: These were far too grand. You couldn't imagine Dame Elizabeth Spriggs lowering herself on a 7.30 soap opera on ITV. No, thank you.
2: I think I'm right in saying that you did over 40 episodes or whatever it was, and... There was a sort of soap element to it, wasn't there, in a way. There were certain things that connected and, you know, it, it was soap-esque.
3: It was a serial
4: as much as a
3: series. Well, it, it, had, it, it had a sagary element to it.
2: And, of course, one of the things that did come out of it was the chemistry between the, uh, the characters and the actors. And I think I am writing saying, aren't I, that this is where you spotted the potential for... Um, Linda Robson and Pauline Quirk actually working together on something else.
4: Yeah, Paulie, Pauline wasn't in it till series three. Linda had said to us and to Tony, can I bring my best friend along to the studio to watch us recording it? And in came Pauline. And she sat in the box with us, Morris and I, the producer's box was further forward. I remember it clearly. And she was really, really funny. And she really made us laugh. And she was a real North London Cockney girl. We liked her. So Morris and I said, we really ought to try and write a part for her in the next series because she's really good, which we did. And every scene she played with Linda Robson, naturally, they'd been friends since they were four, were gems. And Alan kept saying, if we can only find a idea for these two girls i reckon we'd have a really big hit but he said it to everyone in which sense everyone was looking for would they make this or would they make that and i remember that baz our director and tony our producer came up with the idea of two antique dealers that was what they was going but they could never really get it and it was four years later when alan called us up and said could you give me a really big hit show that morris and i threw a series of circumstance came up with birds of a feather so we
3: knew they could, we knew they were good together and we uh, and and
4: you know, But pa- I have to say sorry to interrupt but I have to say that when we were writing episode 1 I don't think we were 10 pages into the first script
3: when Morris said this is going to be a mega hit he just knew but I think that um they were very they, they were just natural they were they were great together and Paul, the reason why Pauline wasn't in Harvey sooner was because I think she was still in Angels. She was playing a, a very cross nurse in Angels. So, so yeah, it did come There was a connection. That. Of course, there was a very strong connection.
4: So we said to the girls, we'd like, you also, know, we'd like to... We think we've got an idea for a new series. And we, and we all, met them again for the first time in four years. We hadn't seen them
3: either. And, of course, we also did a series for Nigel Planer, who we first met on uh, Harvey. Harvey. Roll
4: Over Beethoven, see, yeah, with yeah, him and yeah. Lisa Goddard. And Richard Vernon.
3: Ended up going out in one run of 13. What happened was, Nigel um, did the the first series, then he announced that the uh, young ones were going to go off to Australia. So we had to write him out of series two. I think he could do two episodes, so he was in the the first one and the last one. And then, for some reason, they all got put out at once. It did quite well, and it it was quite... Interesting to make because he wanted to have original music in it every week, which is a, a pretty dull thing to do when you've only got a 22 and a half minute ITV slot <laughs> anyway.
2: I do remember. I remember the opening, you know, musical credits. Yes, yes
3: uh, they were really cheap and nasty, weren't they?
0: <laughs> Take twenty-three.
1: Distinct Comedy presents. Oh, hello. I'm uh, I'm Julian Carp. I'm uh, I'm doing a voiceover. Oh, hello. Experience a day in the life of. Voiceover guy. Take 13. I'm playing a pirate.
0: Is you sure you're in the right place?
1: Written and performed by Jonathan Kidd. Take 24. Aha! Splice the main brace, me
5: hearties. Get on down to Captain Jacob's boat supplies. Sail is now on. Get it?
1: Oh good, let's treat that one as a run through. Aha! Available now on the Distinct Comedy Podcast.
5: Okay then, can we do a series of less piratical wild aha's in threes and we'll splice them on. That okay, Paul? The
1: trials and tribulations of a life spent in voiceover.
0: Sorry, I only have two lemon with honey. I'd like my coffee. I shall scream without a coffee. Eee!
1: New and original comedy. Or softer. Aha! Well, actually, on reflection,
0: I'm
5: not happy with them. I like what we had, all rough and piratey.
1: Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or
5: I might have to give you a black spot. That was blood out of a stone. Won't use him again.
2: (laughs) So back to um, Birds of a Feather. And when I think back to it, um, I mean, it gets repeated a lot, doesn't it, actually? Um, And it's been repeated quite a bit uh, over the the lockdown as well um, on ITV. But... When I think back to it, um, I was in my sort of 20s in the 1990s, and in a way it sort of epitomises that period in a way. It, was, it feels as though it was about women of the 90s. These were women of, of the 90s. Um, tell us how you, obviously you got, um, you got Pauline and uh, Linda. How did you get all three of them together? You know How, how did you come across um, Leslie for, to play um, Dorian?
4: Well, Les, when we thought up the idea which was really about two women whose husbands get sent down essentially that was it it was a little more complicated than that but that's essentially what it was and um and we we approached linda and pauline and said this is the idea this is what we want to write it was then decided we'd set it in chigwell because chigwell at the time and perhaps even still is the one area of Britain more than any other where f- the fewest mortgages are given out on half a million pound houses. So you can guess where the money comes from. So we thought, we'll set it there. So we took Linda and Pauline down to Chigwell, just to have a look around, really, see what it was like. And then we parked the car, and what we were seeing coming out of the David Lloyd Tennis Club, the butchers, the manicurists, everything, was women like Dorian. So we said, well, if we're going to set it here, then it makes good sense that Tracy lives next door to a Dorian. And then I saw, Le- we knew Leslie, but not well. And she'd invited us to go and see her in a play at the, in the West End called Exclusive Yarns. And I went one night and before she even opened her mouth, I thought to myself, that's Dorian. And I came back and said to Morris, I think we found our Dorian. And she came in and did it. And suddenly these three girls, very different actresses, well, not so much Pauline and Linda, but but certainly Leslie, were pa- paired together. And again, we got lucky, you know. Here was a 40-something-year-old woman, actress, very dedicated, who saw this as being her moment of glory. But what was most astonishing about Birds of a Feather, other than the number of complaints about the sexual content of episode one, was how much the nation took it to their hearts.
3: Like Harvey Moon, really. I think it was partly the Essex thing was happening. I think it's partly that it was the first, well, one of the first shows where basically all the leads were women and where women just talked about things that
4: women
2: talk about.
3: talk about. You know, we've often, you know, probably written more women, more female leads than male leads, certainly as many female leads as male leads. It doesn't really cross our minds not to. And because the show was inspired by me spotting two women who just made me think of gangsters' moulds, um, you know, it was always gonna be about the experience of women who've been married maybe to men who are not total bargains and what their lives are like after that. So maybe the country was ready for a show led by female characters. It was interesting that it was roughly the same time as Fools and Horses, and when, um, you know, with three male leads, and when we, when birds went out, we had a lovely message from John Sullivan, who said, "Thank God, there's now two working class comedies on television."
2: The thing I remember, in a way, you're right. Yeah, there was three female leads, um, but the world had changed by that point to, an, uh, in a way, hadn't it? And In fact, bizarrely, actually, uh, I think we've gone a little bit more conservative now. We're, We're a little bit more coy about things that we say and whatever. But actually, at that point, there was this opportunity for women to start talking about things that they wouldn't normally talk about or you wouldn't normally hear them talk about. Uh, in television programmes. So they talk freely about their sex lives and uh, and that kind of thing, couldn't they? Oh, yeah. So you were breaking new ground there in many ways. But the other thing that I also liked about it uh, was, of course, a bit like Porridge and some other comedies, is that was there was actually a serious element to it as well, wasn't there?
4: Yeah, I mean, we never forgot the week before what happened the week earlier. Yeah. What also happened, which we could not have predicted, because we never set out to do it, was Dorian became a gay icon. So... It suddenly appealed not just to the family, but to all these guys. And I remember receiving a letter from about the time, Morris and I did an interview with The Independent, and there was a photographer standing in this restaurant. And we got a letter from Manchester, that a new club was opening in Canal Street. I've got it, I was looking at this letter. And because you know we would appreciate the club so much, would Morris and I come and open the new club? Um, because we've got pictures of you all over the wall. And I had to say, well, we're we're not gay. And they wouldn't believe it. They thought anyone that could create Dorian had to be gay and had to want to come to Canal Street to open up this new club. When Birds went on stage in 2012, I decided to go down to Cardiff to watch it. It was about the opening week or the second week. The place was packed, absolutely heaving. But there were rows and rows and rows of men. I noticed. I mean, just all the Cardiff gay community came out well, to see
3: Dorian. It was she was, and in fact, we ended up doing an episode in which you know, rather like Barbara Streisand and Dolly Parton, she had her own gay impersonator, and, <laughs> and, and and of course, it's great. She loved she loved all that. Um, it worked really well, but you don't set out to do ABC. It, it sort of happens. And and I think that
4: this was the big hit that Alan said. Can yeah. you write me yeah. a big hit quickly? Thing... Yeah. So, but... "Birds of a Feather" became his biggest ever hit. But the one episode I always remember. Oh. I know what you're going to say.
2: Yeah, you know exactly what I'm going to say. The one where she's doing the the thing on on uh, in the club or on stage. Um, is it? Do, do you think I'm sexy?
3: I like a virgin.
2: Yeah, that's it. Like a virgin. Like a virgin. That was brilliant. And when I interviewed. Um, Linda Robson and Leslie Joseph Linda was saying to me that uh uh they um didn't actually realize what was going to happen um and saw it for the first time when they were acting um that scene so actually it was a <laughs> seeing uh Leslie doing Dorian on stage doing like a virgin. Um, came as a you know a shock to them in in reality uh, as well as uh, in the parts,
3: maybe the director managed to keep them apart from that but what was interesting was that we Lawrence and i lived in we were still living in london then, and there was a karaoke night at a, a pub the, the cock called the cock in um, nothing <laughs> nothing sort of suggestive about it it was just you know it was named an innocent time, although when i this was in Edmonton, near Tottenham. I was, I was in the 70s, manager of Tottenham Labour Exchange. And the joke going round then was there was a streaker up the North Circular Road and the police managed to catch him at the cock. Grabbed him by Grabbed the him cock. Grabbed him by the cock, sorry. <laughs> so there you go. Um, which only goes to show, as we've always said, that the, the, the English and indeed the British sense of humour is low. And whenever we get criticised or the BBC get a load of Complaints, particularly birds, which is quite raunchy for an eight thirty show. Um, we say, you know, if you've ever read any Chaucer or Shakespeare or or or, or anything, you know, British humour is below the belt. It always has been, and it's only, you know, the priciest elements of the middle classes who pretend it's not. But with 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 birds, it gelled. Yes, the girl we had the naturalism of the girls who could do just invent business you know that we didn't have to write business or even think about business because just the way they interacted was so natural and and then Leslie came in and she was going to grab this chance with both hands we just said you know it's a show about two women whose husbands are in prison so it could be difficult to generate comedy all the time from that so we need someone to come in with some light relief. And in fact, I remember saying that I wanted just to base her on the next-door neighbour in I Love Lucy, who, not that Lucy needed any help, but Vivian Vance, you should just come in. Someone said, enter Dorian, bearing the subplot.
2: And of course, man-eating women and nothing new, are they really? I mean, Dick Emery, uh, most of his characters were... Of of that ilk, weren't they?
3: All of them. The thing about of was also she was she was drawn on several real people, and we had to tone it down. Some of the stories we heard that we used for Dorian, we had to tone down.
4: And then there was the Essex girls, and and Paul and Linda were real Essex girls. I mean, uh, what's the sh- documentary they do now?
3: Anyway, it's Essex.
4: Yeah. Well, that's just really all stems in the well, it's tree all, of things well. from Birds of a Feather. But what's interesting, as Morris said, is that, that there wasn't another women's show, even the liver birds, which I liked a lot, where the women were so patently working class. You know, when people turned on birds and come home from our day's graft. So they. or well, so they should have done, except for Linda was living off the earnings of, of holding up Building Society. So it was really good. It was it was good fun and we've just finished recording one for Christmas this yeah. year. So we're thirty-one years into that first episode, which is remarkable. So when Morris said this all run and run, he didn't know the half of it.
2: Of course, you had a very long run on the BBC, uh, and then when you brought it back, it, it was on ITV. Was it ITV that approached you?
3: No, we... we
4: BBC, it, BBC couldn't make up their mind. It was
3: because we'd done the stage show, which was something that just came out of the blue. Some producers approached us about doing a stage show. That did surprisingly well, because it had the original cast. And as a result of that, the BBC started to sniff around and they showed interest and they commissioned the script. How would we bring it back? Because it was, you know, 14 years since we'd done it. Um, And we brought it back. We wrote a script. They really liked the script, but as Lauren said, they hummed and hawed and said, well, shall we do a special? And we said, well, we'd rather do a series. And they said, well, would you like to do two specials? And we said, no, we'd rather do a series. And so we went to ITV and they couldn't believe and, and, it. And, and we saw the you know controller of ITV who we knew very well and and we said to him do you want this show and he said are you serious and we said yes and he said are you, are you just are you using me to to leverage it and we said no no if you if we shake once we shake hands it's your show and so five minutes later we shook hands
4: and then, of course, the first episode got figures they couldn't even believe they had, in fact had to go back to the people that supply the overnight figures to check there hadn't been a mistake it was uh, and he wrote back to me the controller of programs then he just wrote an email to me and it said, "Wow, exclamation okay. and so it was back, so people still loved
3: it yeah, i okay. mean obviously they're they're older and and we've brought in you know other characters and so on and so so it's not been. And it's and it's you know six or seven minutes shorter, so you have to find a new way of telling the stories quicker. One of the reasons why we brought Dorian back and put her in the same house is to not have to sort of bring people in and out the front door. But you know, a TV series like that is very much, you know, it's a work of craft. It's not a work of art, and you just have to, you know, make sure that the bits fit I together.
2: Like are they shot slightly differently now? I mean, um, I mean, have you? Do, do you have a studio audience?
4: Well, not for this latest one. We weren't allowed near the actors, let alone a studio audience.
3: Until the last couple of specials, it was all shot in front of an audience in the in the usual way. Then the last special we did, which was about four years ago, because of time pressure and other things, and budget pressure, because it's very expensive shooting in front of an, a studio audience it was all shot on location and then played into an audience but the but the laughter you get is the real audience laughter this time this is a scoop this time we had to make the show very remotely and play it in rather like we're talking to you play it in like to a zoom audience and use the zoom audience as a as a guide track so whatever you hear is is based on the genuine reaction but obviously you have to amplify it because 50 people sitting in 50 rooms is not the same as 300 people in the studio.
2: Yeah, I mean the same thing's happening in in radio at the moment. We've just made um, the um, comedy panel show The Likely Dads for uh, uh for Radio 4 and uh we had that option to to do, you know, to play it to people on Zoom in different households around the country. I chose not to in the end, because um I just thought it was really complicated and complex, and in the end, we had a socially distanced uh panel um and the um their reactions to what everyone was saying uh and the producers' reactions was sort of enough really to create an atmosphere we didn't actually need to go to those uh that those lengths of having the the zooms so um yeah um but yeah it, it's happening a lot isn't it at the moment
3: yeah i think an atmosphere is a good word for it because i yeah. mean for example the first couple of have i got news for you it was like they'd opened tutankhamun's tomb and found a very old panel show in it
2: <laughs> you, you talked about the filming and, and whatever and the the audience what about the setting um because it's Is it the same house as it was before? It's not, is
3: it? Well, what happened was that in in the story, they moved house in about about series seven. Uh, And one of the reasons they moved house in series seven was, I think, because it was getting more and more expensive to go and shoot the exteriors of the original location because that estate had become... You know, privatize and they, you know, it was no longer public rights of way or something. So we said, well, they can move house after all. And we wrote a story that they had to move house because there was running out of money. And then we, no and remember. then I know no one remembers that. And so this house that you, uh, again, we had to rebuild it and find. You know, it's basically we, as you know, because you're in the business, we worry. Far more about these things than the audience, you know. Think well, the front door's there; it's not there, so you can't have that shot because the relationship between the front door and the stairs. No one cares, um, but people in TV are are so meticulous, you know. So um, they essentially live in the,
4: in Chigwell. It's
3: uh, it. still a detached house in Chigwell, um, and, but you know, when we brought the show back. As I say, after 13, 14 years, um, we committed one or two terrible faux pas. You know, we wrote, we wrote, or we didn't write, but some of the guys you know, who, wrote, who wrote with us, an episode all about um, Chris's, which is to say Sharon's ex's mum, having a birthday party. And no one remembered, including the cast, that we'd killed her about series three. <laughs> well, audience, we got yeah, we got about five people remembered, and and of course when we had the series and we had our production company, we had a Bible and the and and, and Moses or whoever was playing the part of Moses would said hang on you can't do that, and and once you know when someone loves something
4: they're not looking yeah, we for, for holes. Though. When
3: we brought Garth back with his girl from Australia, we'd forgotten he'd been, he'd married him off. He had a kid, you know so you know mayor's corpus
2: oh. you've got a christmas special um this year that's uh on itv and it'll be repeated i'm sure on uh the various other itv channels and people will be able to get it as well on uh on the itv hub um christmas special but um pauline's not in it
0: no
3: i mean i don't know this is from this is our interpretation she's very private pauline but i think that we do know that she's got this chain of academies that she's putting a lot of effort into, yeah. but we always saying and it's this in it is the truth is that she's not in the special. We you know the door is open for her yeah. to return. Well, it's, if if nice. if it goes out at Christmas and does well, yeah. uh, ITV say oh that's done well. I mean I think mean, again, but then they had the repeats, which went out because of COVID and they did. Terrifically well. I think the repeats were the top comedy of On television. And so we persuaded ITV there was a way of making it without Pauline. Obviously, it would have to have some new characters and be a different sort of mix. We've done that, we've proved it works. And if the audience like it, um, then, and they want some more, then we're very, very happy. We'd be delighted if Pauline suddenly says, you know, I'd like to do a couple. Um, you know, we've left her, um, one of the, kind of the very, very, very few joys of COVID is it gave us a very good reason for Pauline to be stuck in quarantine 7,000 miles away. <laughs> <laughs> so we reference her, but we don't, but we didn't need her in the show. Um, although it's, you know, a funny story, I hope, um, we haven't fought shy of, covid you know it's set very much in the world that we're living in
2: well it's great to see that it's still going after after all these years
3: we're writing something now about about career criminals who um you know might be in prison for 25 years of of of, of a 40-year career and i feel with birds you know we were the first yeah we did we did nine years then we had 13 years off and now we're back
2: well i think it's still got the magic um, oh, thank you so how um so how's dorian gonna cope in lockdown
3: Dor- dorian is someone who does not cope well when kept apart by law from members of the opposite gender
2: yeah of course of course well i mean talking about lockdown one of my favorite episodes actually is the one where they're all um locked in uh in that warehouse that you know as well as the one um the the, the um like a virgin episode. My other favourite is that one where they're, they're they're um they're all in a in a warehouse or whatever it is and and can't get out. And uh yeah, that I think that's brilliant, though.
3: And you know what, that is a true story, except it didn't happen. Because what happened was I went to um it was Bath. We went to Bath by car. It was a Sunday, couldn't find anywhere to park, and then someone said that old warehouse there that's a car park for the market so we drove into this warehouse which was full of cars and gave someone a quid and left and then we went to the market and then the market finished then we went have a bit of lunch went to the pub went for a walk round down the river when we came back to the warehouse it was all locked up and <laughs> and we, we and we, we managed to get in and through the toilet which they got out from and, and our car was the only car in this like 10,000 square foot warehouse but luckily the door was only bolted so we were able to drive out but I came back and said this is a great trap scenario and, yeah. but the interesting thing and, and, and we're bizarrely proud of this is that your two favourite shows we didn't write Jeff, okay. Jeff Rowley wrote that warehouse, warehouse show and Jeff, and Jeff Dean wrote karaoke. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. But We've the, the, the karaoke show, Lawrence and I, going back to the cock, sorry about that, we got diverted. <laughs> we went... We. Did you come with me? I don't yeah. know if you did No, I didn't. Man. I went to the karaoke night at the Cock. The first time I've been to a karaoke night, it was very, it was a semi-professional karaoke night. So it was really, really good. And I saw how it was done. I'm talking about 1990. So if you remember, they, they had these laser discs in a cabinet. Each laser disc was about two foot across. That the backing tapes were on you know now it would all be on someone's phone so the technology of it was extraordinary and i saw it and i said this is a fantastic thing it was just it was you know it was just perfect and we and so we went back to jeff who was a newish writer Who's first thing? and we said this is a setup the girls want to do karaoke and dorian's dorian poo-poos it they go to the club they lose their bottle, or when they come out, Dorian's nick their spot. And it was like that, and the story was, that was it. And it, and it, was, it was written in about a week.
2: Lawrence Marks and Maurice they there talking to me about everything from Shine and Harvey Moon through to Birds of Feather. Of course, it doesn't end there with their careers. In part two of episode one of Comedy Writing Legends, we'll be hearing all about Goodnight Sweetheart and The New Statesman. Look out for part two during the festive season here on Distinct Nostalgia.
0: Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM and there are loads more excellent shows to listen to on our website. Danny Rogers recalls growing up with 321's Dusty Bin.
5: So my first encounter with Dusty Bidden was my dad sort of wheeling him out as a young boy. I had no clue what this thing was and I was frightened of course but as it went on I was like oh this is my new best friend <laughs> and I was one of the lucky
0: few that actually had one in their bedroom. Kathy Gorey discusses the legacy of Rosemary the telephone operator. Halal halal. I had an effect on a bunch of Gen Xers or maybe I was their first female crush or something but I meet men some of them quite powerful now who grew up watching me. You know watching Rosemary rather. But I thought this is nuts and they let me do pretty much what I wanted to do. Everything was always rhyming some you call the police department on Hong Kong and that's, that's what I thought Rosemary would sound like. And John Boy himself talks about his childhood with the Waltons. It was really one of the great ensemble TV shows. I mean we had 11 regulars and although the story was told from John Boy's point of view, one of the great things about the show was the main story could be about the little kid one week or it could be about the grandparents so you had all this wonderful generational comprehensiveness about it and so I would call it first and foremost a great ensemble these programs and many more are available at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts subscribe to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available and if you like what we do then please consider supporting us on Patreon every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you go to distinct and click on the donate button thank you for listening and bye for now distinct nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with life rooms and mersey care nhs foundation trust we've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org staying well staying home